Jade from New Jersey, it's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out over Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. Darren! <laughs> was that a scream for help, or what was, yeah. did I... Yes, did I... It, it's all those things and more. We. It's been a weird week. So You don't You don't say why, what happened? Uh, yeah, yeah, not, not much, you know, uh... Lots of people dead, world on fire, uh, mm. you know, rioting I in the streets, see. literally rioting in the streets. Uh, <sighs> wow. Yeah, I, it's it's bad out there. I like I, I feel like any minute I'm, I feel like any minute I'm going to see a dog and cat living together, like literally, and that yeah. that's when I'll that's when I'll know. That that is the state that we are in. I mean, really, if Zool came to Earth and started zapping people, and we had a giant marshmallow man wandering through the streets of New York City, would things be any weirder than they are right now? No, I would welcome it. Yes, yes. I mean, because that would at least mean that we're coming to a climax on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, the end. End is nigh. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, but yeah, guys, like, I don't, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's just, it's just insane out there. Uh, everybody, please stay safe. Don't, don't do anything crazy. And um, I don't know. I think, well, I mean, the only thing I could say is that it's a, it is a good thing that we were not doing the Daryl Hammond doc today because I just think that would be too much heaviness. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, for the next few weeks, at least we, we have to lean into the stupid. We had to lean into yeah. the goofy, the stupid, the silly, the inconsequential. We need we need a nice escape. We need a nice outlet. And, Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Like this for for the next few weeks, if not months, this show will be will act as an escape from the insanity that is the real world. This will be yeah. this is like you be coming up for a breath of air after you've been swimming uh, underwater for so long. Yeah, we. I mean, what we're we're not qualified to do much as comedians, but we we can provide hopefully like a little oasis, a little oasis of fun and and humor and entertainment, and we are going to do our best to provide that. Yes, we're doing the Lord's work. Yes. So, uh, like speaking of of outlets and escape, you you were talking about you're catching up on a few TV shows. Or, or introducing yourself to some TV shows that you hadn't seen before. What what are your outlets in, right. in the world right now? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've been watching. There's three shows I've been watching. One is connected to SNL, uh, okay. so I'll save that for last. Uh, one show I've been watching is um, on Hulu, the show Rami, which I actually enjoy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, like I didn't know much about it. It, it definitely it has a vibe of uh, some other shows that I really like, like Atlanta and. Um, Master of None, but mm-hmm. it, def- it also reminds me a lot, a lot of Louie, too. And uh, it, I mean, it's, for those that don't know, it's basically um, Rami Youssef is a comedian from Jersey, and he, uh, in a show, he plays, you know, a fictionalized version of himself living in Jersey with his parents. Uh, he's a Muslim American, but and he um, he respects the Muslim faith and the religion, but he's also mm-hmm. like a, he's also a young millennial. So like he, you know, it's like basically him trying to balance both worlds like he respects his you know his religion and the past and heritage but at the same time he's a young kid who likes to party and you know do stuff that youngins do so it's just like him basically trying to balance the two worlds be a better person trying to find enlightenment 
And it's a really good show. It was like, uh, I really dug it. it. It definitely, like I said, it had that vibe of like the show Louie. So, um, mm-hmm. it, and it takes place in New Jersey, which uh, we always love here. So if you're into that, what? I suggest you watch Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've watched Yeah, I, I've not seen that show. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it's a show. It's a good show. I dig it. Uh, I've been watching that. I've also watched uh, The Boys on Amazon, which is uh, not, it was, I really, another show I really dug. Um, if it's on Amazon, for if you don't know the concept of that, it's basically like um, it's a it's a sort of a world where super, where superheroes are you know very commonplace, and the way they get treated is more like um, uh, what you call it, like um, like, like or... yeah, like celebrities or athletes, where they kind of have this impunity to do whatever they want a little bit, and um, one of the groups is um. Of superheroes is called the seven they're like seven superheroes that like you know patrol the world and save the world but like to them saving the world and doing you know serving justice it's more of a job than mm-hmm. the actual what they want to do because the seven is also headed up by this big corporation and the corporation kind of lends them out to, to to where they need to go they also have like um a lot of movie deals and endorsements and you know stuff that like an athlete would have so it's it's basically like that. Like, what would happen if a corporation took a hold of all these superheroes and kind of lent them out to to you know save the world and make appearances and stuff? And what would happen if superheroes were more interested or cared more about their you know endorsement deals and how well their movies are doing at the box office than they do actually serving justice? Yeah, yeah. I I'm haven't watched the show. I'm a bit familiar with the comic book that it's adapted from by uh, Garth Ennis, and uh, I think it was Derek Robinson was the artist on that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I know that the comic gets pretty hardcore, and I understand the series is kind of hardcore too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, there's a, it's, it's not for the squeamies. There's a lot of ultraviolence. There's a lot of, you know, it gets dark. It gets it yeah. gets very dark, but it's also very well done and very excellent. So and, and also, um, so the show kicks off is uh, what happens is um, a superhero accidentally kills this one guy's girlfriend in the beginning, mm-hmm. and um, of course, you know they, they they have a press release and he says he's sorry, but the guy, of course, is really upset. He wants justice because the guy, the superhero, when he accidentally killed his girlfriend, seemed he seemed to be on something, you know, because mm-hmm. it's basically a world where like superheroes are kind of shitty, like real people are, or like, you know, yeah. athletes and celebrities are. And like, uh, if something happens to, you know, if a superhero does something accidentally, it gets covered over by the big corporation and, you know, everything gets swept under the rug. Uh, so the guy whose girlfriend gets killed wants justice. So he meets up with another guy and they form this uh, kind of this group called the boys where they keep superheroes in check from doing all their uh, wild insane shit. And it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty ultra violent. It's uh, I mean, I can't even describe the things I see on that show, but it, but it also it's also really well done too. Cool, cool. And and what was the the show with the SNL connection that you're checking uh, out? Uh, the show with the SNL connection I've been checking out is uh, on Amazon as well. It only lasted a year. It's the show uh, Forever with um, Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen. Oh, I don't I don't know much about uh, Forever. What's what's that like? Uh, it's really. Have you seen the commercials for it? I don't think so. No. Oh, wow. All right. Well, I mean, it was only, I don't know if I should say it now because like two things happen 
in the first two episodes that are like really big spoilers. Like, because okay. uh, like when they when I saw commercials for their the show, like they basically advertise it as you know Fred Armisen and uh, Maya Rudolph, they're uh, older married couple who've been married for a while, and now they're in that kind of stage of their marriage where it's, it becomes very kind of you know humdrum and. You know, to just do the same things over and over again, that stagnant part of the marriage. But then, but then, but they never tell you about what happens at the end of the first episode or the second episode, because they want it to be a surprise. But that surprise, mm-hmm. but I don't know, that surprise is also kind of like the hook of the show. Because like, I feel like if more people knew about the big, you know, surprise at the end of the first and the second one, then they would be more, they, then they would have maybe checked it out more. But um, it's hard to describe the show without giving away that those two uh, things. But um, but I mean, either way, it's it, it was, it's an interesting show. Um, it was uh, created by Alan Yang, who worked on Parks and Rec. And mm. um, yeah, it's it, like I said, it's only on for one season. It got canceled after a year, so, so there's only eight episodes. So I would say watch forever. I'm not going to tell you what the you'll you'll know it when you see it. But at the end of the first and second episodes, two big things happened that reshaped the whole show. So. I, that's all I'll say. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've I've been uh, I've been going through the series Community again, and I've finished like the over the last couple of weeks. I finished the first three seasons, and uh, I'm now I'm now in the fourth season, which is the first time I've watched that since it first aired. Which was the if you're a fan of Community, it's it's the season that they did without the creator Dan Harmon, and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, you know, it's not. It's not. I wouldn't say it's bad, but it's just off. You know, it's not. It's not what the show was, and it doesn't have the driving force behind it. So, it's yeah. yeah it, it's come to become known among community fans as the gas leak year because when Dan Harmon came back to the show in the fifth season, the way he covered all the things he didn't like or the people acting out of character or whatever, he just said, uh, "Greendale, the community college." Of that the show takes place in had a gas leak for the entire year, so it made people act weird. Which uh, you know, it's a good way to get past it and move on, I guess. So, yeah, that season uh, from everybody, from all the diehard fans, say yeah, that season of Community is very much like the uh, Dick Ebersole years of Community. Yeah, yeah, that might be a good analogy for it, and uh, and I'm looking forward to to see watching seasons five and six because i i watched season five i think like once when dan Harmon came back but i ha- i certainly haven't rewatched it like i have the first three years and i've hardly seen any of the six season at all because they originally did that for uh yahoo's streaming service which just did not really take off and i i think i saw the first episode of that but I, not anything beyond that so i i haven't seen most of the last season i'm looking forward to getting to that uh, yeah, I actually remember watching the very last season on Yahoo, and yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's good, but it's not what it was. Mm-hmm. It's okay, yeah, so, like, I mean, if, if if I had seen that series and not known about, you know, the greatness of the, the past seasons, I would have been like, oh, it's a really good show. But, like, you know, after now knowing what it was and seeing it, you know, now, that season, it, I would have been like... Hmm. Yeah, this isn't. Uh, yeah. 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 Um. It's. I don't know. It's. Yeah. It's going to be weird to see if uh, 
it'll be interesting to see if it, the show ever totally gets its groove back. I don't know if it did or not, but uh, we'll see. But I, God, I love those first three years. It's pretty perfect. Yeah, yeah. And it just gets weirder and weirder as it goes on, which is always fun. Yeah. <laughs> weird is fun. And speaking of weird, uh, we're here to talk about a movie with some SNL connections. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Christopher Guest's A Mighty Wind, which is all about uh, folk singing. Folk singing right. of the 1960s reuniting. And I got the description on the back of the DVD because this is one that I own. Uh, so let me read that. Uh, in a Mighty Wind, director Christopher Guest reunites the team from Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman to tell the story, co-written by Eugene Levy, of 60s-era folk musicians who, inspired by the death of their former manager, get back on the stage for one concert in New York City's Town Hall. Uh, Levy and Catherine O'Hara are Mitch and Mickey, once the sweethearts of folk music until their bitter separation. Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shear are classic folk trio The Folksmen. And Parker Posey, John Michael Hankins, and Jane Lynch anchor a color-coordinated, harmonizing newflet, the new Main Street Singers. Joining the musicians are Bob Balaban, Ed Bagley Jr., Jennifer Coolidge, Paul Dooley, Michael Hitchcock, Don Lake, Larry Miller, Jim Piddock, Deborah Theaker, and Fred Willard, who all work to revive folk music in this uniquely touching comedy. So... Um, yeah, and part, part of the reason we decided to do this was because one of the stars of the film, Fred Willard, he unfortunately uh, passed away uh, just in the last uh, couple weeks. Yes. And he, he's a big part of this movie, and it's, it's very much in his wheelhouse. He was really, always really good at playing these very oblivious idiots, and uh, that is certainly what Fred Willard does in this movie. That's, that's him at his best. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The one scene in this movie that we'll probably talk about later is just... I mean, my lord, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen on, t on, on a movie. Okay. Um, so, shall we dive in? Yes, dive in too. A Mighty Wind came out May 9th, 2003, uh, directed by uh, Christopher Guest, written by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy. Uh, I'd say one of the best movies in the uh, Christopher Guest universe of film, the GCU. The yeah, CGU. This one, yes, this might be my favorite in the, in the CGU. Um, I, I, I certainly like it better than Best of Show. I haven't seen Waiting for Guffman in forever, so but it's at least on a par with Waiting for Guffman, if not better than Waiting for Guffman. I still haven't seen uh, For Your Consideration. I need to check that out someday. I, I remember watching that. It was good, but it definitely has like a more serious, somber tone than I was expecting. Mm. And um, So, yeah, I remember a lot of people are kind of turned off by that. And uh, I haven't seen um, Mascots yet, the, uh, the, the one that went straight to Netflix. But I heard. Yeah, I haven't seen about that either. So, um, but this was a very well received movie. It's got an eighty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, seventy-five percent audience score. So, I would say, uh, yeah, people they generally like it. Um, there's a there's a very nice quote here uh, in the critic reviews from Nev Pierce from BBC.com, and it says, "Quote not available." So, <laughs> wait, what? That is that is like the topper. If you go on to the Rotten Tomatoes page for A Mighty Win, the very first quoted review just says, quote, not available. Oh, Lord. <laughs> quote, not available. Uh, but he gives it two out of five stars. So I guess he wasn't too high on it. Yeah, wow. I should have made that my high school yearbook quote. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But, uh, Colossal 95. Yeah, I mean, it's it's told in, in Christopher Guest's usual sort of mockumentary style. He kind of took what Rob Reiner did with This is Spinal Tap and kind of ran with it in his own right. And by this time, he had this solid repertoire company of actors that he would just plug into the various roles in his movies. And uh, the movie opens up with a news report about the death of uh, uh, Irving Steinblum, who was the manager of all these folk singers in the 1960s. And it just sort of gives you a, a quick briefing of who he was, what he was about. And it introduces you to the various characters of the movie. And, uh, right. and a good way to introduce all the, it's a good way to introduce kind of, all the folk acts you're about to see coming up and one yeah. nice quick chunk. Exactly. It gets the lion's share of the movie's exposition out of the way in a, in a pretty efficient way. Um, you know, the only thing that's missing is, is somebody coming in and be like, boss, you gotta come see this. Um, no, it just <laughs> right in with that little newscast with giving the exposition. And I think that's a real newscaster at the beginning. If I, if I remember correctly, cause he, he looked really familiar. Oh, was it his first rodeo? Uh, the 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 let's see the cast is in credit order on IMDb and it's Jim Moray as a newscaster. Uh, let me see. Well, no, actually he is an actor, so he's not a real life newscaster. So, but he he doesn't he has played a lot of newscasters and reporters apparently. So that's what most of his IMDb page is. Uh, okay, it's like uh, the the Perd Happily of uh, of films. Exactly. Exactly. He's like the Perk Apley of films. Right. I mean, I can't remember that, that actor's name. He does play a lot of, like, news anchors. I just remember his name, but, like, I, I, I just know him as Perk. I, I first saw him as Perk Happily on Parks and Recreation, so whenever he plays, like, a serious newscaster, I can't take him seriously, because I'm like, that's Perk Happily. Um, <laughs> like, he popped up on Supergirl, because the guy's been a newscaster in real life, so he knows the cadence uh, that a, a newscast should be done in, but I, I'm seeing him as a straight newscaster on Supergirl, and it's just like that's that's purred happily. I'm totally out of the, the <laughs> show now. Um, but anyway, so um, Irving uh, Steinblum has passed away, and Bob Balaban is playing his son Jonathan Steinblum, who decides to do a tribute concert to him at Town Hall, and he's going to bring together all the acts that uh, Irving. Uh, his dad had such a hand in in making these acts. And so we've got the the folksmen who are Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, and Michael McKean, the same guys who did Spinal Tap. Uh, we got the Main Street Singers, um, who are now the new Main Street Singers, uh, which is a group of uh, nine folks. And they're like a, a folks folksy group, uh, like a, a very, very pure, very crisp, Christian, very Osmond. Apparently there were a parody of the uh, New Christy Minstrels, which was a folk band from the 60s, who, whose many former members, according to IMDb trivia, included Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, and Barry McGuire. So, Oh, Kim Carnes, Big Davis eyes? Oh, shit. Yep. Yep. All right. I rock with that. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then the... Uh, the other act is, of course, uh, Mitch and Mickey, played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, who are sort of, uh, well, let's see. They, I mean, they were like the romantically attached folk duo, and they had a very famous song called uh, Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, where at the end of that song, they, they have a, a kiss. And it's very sweet. Yeah. Very sweet yeah. 
They're like they're kind of like the folk version of like Lindsay Buckingham, and Stevie Nicks. I'd say. Yes, yes, with all that implies. <laughs> with all that implies. Yeah, and and so we we sort of over the course of this mockumentary, we follow these uh, fictional groups as they reunite and they get they converge in New York for this big tribute concert. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty simple premise for the entire movie. It's just like, oh, this manager died who, you know, oversaw all these bands. Let's get in together for one big concert. And then that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty much it. Then we just go and uh, sort of get the backstory of each of the of the bands and, like, kind of what they've been up to. And we just see them kind of rehearse for the big show and just kind of riff off each other. Yeah, yeah. And there's a cameo early on in this movie as we see the original uh, Main Street singers on like one of their album covers. Uh, and I'm wondering if you notice this, that there's actually an SNL cast member in the original Main Street singers. And did John, you notice Trumbull, John Trumbull, not only did I notice that, I wrote it down in my notes. Uh, nothing gets to you, Darren Patterson. Look at you, just in my mind, in all in my head. Uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, we see one of the original Main Street singers was uh, Mary Gross from yeah. the from the Dick Episode years, which I just mentioned. It all comes together. Yeah, and she was on the show. Uh, I believe she had some overlap with when Harry Shearer and Christopher Guest were regulars on the show, because uh, she she kind of uh, she was there in both the Eddie Murphy era and in the uh, the Billy Crystal Harry Shearer Christopher Guest era and Marty Short era. Right, right. I actually, I expected to see her, like you know, in this movie in some capacity, but she's just on the old album covers, which I, it's like, yep. oh, I would like to see what she's doing now. Just a quick uh, visual cameo, but uh, yeah, but you know, it's it's cool that she's in there, and uh, the other uh, one from the original uh, Main Street Singers is is Paul Dooley, the great character actor Paul Dooley. Um, who I mean, you've you've seen it in a million things. Uh, I mean. Paul, Paul Dooley, he's just one of those, hey, it's that guy. And he's he's just terrific. Yes, I remember seeing him and it's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like I've, like you said, but like I didn't, like if you asked me to name a movie he was in, I would, I, I would, I would totally blink. Well, I mean, like some of his famous roles were he, he was the dad in Breaking Away, that, that great movie about the, uh, about the cutters in Indiana. You know, and they, they have the big right. bike race. And he, he runs the used car lot in town. He's wonderful in that movie. He's the dad in 16 Candles. Um, and he's uh, he played Wimpy in Robert Altman's movie of Popeye. Whoa. That's, yeah. yeah that, I don't. Do you remember seeing Pop, the Popeye, the film? I remember kind of liking it as a kid, but I also remember thinking this, this movie's kind of weird. Uh, yes to both. I saw it as a kid. <laughs> Um, and it is kind of weird. Yes, it okay, is a movie right. version, and it's a m- movie version of Popeye, and it's directed by Robert Altman of all people. I okay. get. I have for years. I have wondered how did Robert Altman end up directing Popeye, and the the best I can come up with is people mutter under the, their breath in early uh, Popeye cartoons and in Robert Altman movies. So maybe that's how they came about. I don't know. <laughs> Like, hey this, hey, this guy really knows how to shoot people muttering. Maybe we should have him do this pop Exactly, exactly. But, I mean, the the casting in that movie is, is pretty spot on. You got Robin Williams as Popeye. You got Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil because she'd worked with Robert Altman a lot. 
Paul Dooley is wimpy. The guy who played uh, Brutus, amazing, like Dead Ringer. I don't know his name, but uh, and uh, I think it was like Robert Altman's gr- grandson who played Sweepy, who's just one of the, literally one of the cutest babies ever committed to film. Oh, little baby! But yeah, I just remember, I remember watching that movie as a kid and being like, I like I I like it, kind of like it, but it's this definitely ain't normal. Yeah, it does. It doesn't quite add up. It doesn't entirely work as a film, but it's still it's an interesting failure. Is how I like to put it. Okay, and you had Ray Walson as Poop Dick Pappy. Yeah, Popeye's daddy, his long lost daddy. Yeah, so that's fun. So Popeye. <laughs> We're talking about a movie from 1980. All right, so yeah, uh, Mighty Wind. Let's get back to this. Sorry, and and Funk by Harry Nielsen. So, ooh. Everybody's yeah. talking at me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, okay, one, one more little bit of trivia about Popeye that uh, I'm just going to get out there because who knows when we're ever going to cover the movie Popeye on this podcast. Uh, they actually built a whole village of Sweet Haven where, where they shot it in uh, like Malta, I think, or, or something like that. And that is still standing. It is still a tourist attraction. Really? Yeah. Oh shit! Yeah. All right, I gotta. Well, if you're ever in Malta, go go there and check out the Popeye sets, people. Uh, wow! All right, I gotta, I, I, I gotta call my travel agent. Yeah, book your ticket now. I mean, uh, right. yeah, you, 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 you don't want to go during the peak tourist season, of course, but uh, that's right. You, you want to go, you want to go after when the crowds have died down. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, so. Okay, so we got so we got all the folk singers, and they're reuniting for this big tribute concert. And uh, as I said before, the the Main Street singers they've reformed as the new Main Street singers, and they're largely a new group except for Paul Dooley. He's just like the one vestige from the original lineup, <laughs> and he's just standing there. And apparently, I read this on the on the Wikipedia page. They say in the uh, on the DVD commentary, uh, Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy said that uh, Paul Dooley's character doesn't actually play any instrument. He can't play the guitar. But just before a performance by the original Main Street Singers, he sh- he stained his shirt front and covered it up by s- holding a guitar for the performance, something he continued to do for all subsequent performances. So, <laughs> so that's fun. <laughs> I didn't notice that until you just said it. It's like, now that I think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, he never played the guitar. He just held it. Yep, he never he doesn't play the guitar at any point in the movie, which is that's kind of cool. Um, but uh, new, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was gonna say yeah. So we we're introduced to the new Main Street Singers with the two uh, married couple who head up the group, uh, uh, Terry and Laurie Lord. Boner, who yeah. uh, John Michael Higgins <laughs> and <laughs> Boner. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? Because <laughs> it's a slang term for an erect penis. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, now I get it. I know. I just got that myself. Um, but yeah, and they're played by the great uh, John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch. Who, I mean, if you if you're doing a, a movie that's largely improvised, the way the Christopher Guest mockumentary movies are, these are two people you want to have in your cast. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're they, the great. They are just two of the best comedic improvisers ever, ever, ever. And they are very, very funny in this movie. 
I like how um, John Michael Higgins' character, uh, Terry, was talking about him, how he grew up with folk music. And mm-hmm. uh, he said, yeah, through my wife, we I realized that there had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Yes, yes. And, uh, and Laurie has this sort of, she came to the new Main Street Singers through this strange circuitous route. Like when the original group broke up, uh, some of them broke away and they op- opened up a uh, an adult uh, store, like an adult, uh, like a porno store, basically. And, and what was that called? It was it was called the Three Wiseman's Adult Emporium. And right. Laura talks about how she she like became connected with them, and then she began to star in the movies that they produced, and she became very popular because she did a certain thing that most other people would not do. <laughs> They never say what the thing is, so it's just up to your imagination. But she just says it with this huge grin, and she just winks at the camera when she did it. And, you know, it's, it's all the funnier because it's all just implied. And then she she eventually met uh, John Michael Higgins' character of Terry, and they got together, and, and she joined the group. Yeah. Beautiful so, story. So, yeah, she's a, she's a former porn star who's now in a Christian folk singing group. You know, that old story. Yeah, that old chestnut. You remember the? You know, you've heard that before. And then we find out uh, some of uh, Mitch and Mickey's backstory, where they were like this, you know, famous couple. They were like America's sweethearts, and then they they broke up, and Mitch did not take it well. He he goes off the deep end, and we see a couple of his solo albums. His solo albums are titled "Cry for Help" and "Calling It Quits," and. I- <laughs> I, like, I don't mean to laugh at that, but if you see how like insane the album co- al- artwork is, it's yeah. like, oh, this is sad, but it's also pretty funny. Uh, on the cover of Calling It Quits, he is literally digging his own grave, and it's so dark, <laughs> you just have to laugh at it. And Eugene Levy, I, I have to call him out for just one of the, the best performances in this movie. He is so good, and just the character he constructed. Uh, his Mitch is this sort of old burnt out hippie type and he just has this very specific cadence and, and weird hesitant way of speaking and he's he's one of those guys who's just taken enough drugs that it's had this real residual effect you know like kind of like uh, reverend jim in taxi or something like that yeah and, I, I heard i think i remember hearing in an interview like they asked eugene levy about it back when this movie came out and he said something like if i believe he said something like oh yeah i was just doing an ozzy osbourne impression <laughs> yes okay i can very much see that yeah yeah he, it's very much uh ozzy osbourne and he's got he's got like the big thick glasses that you expect eugene levy to usually have and he's got this great wig with this just sort of gray uh hair and then he's got like uh, one of those those strip beard things that is like the exact same uh thickness as his eyebrows <laughs> so it, it's, oh, yeah. like the, he's like a yeah. Like a soul patch, right? Yeah. I, is it still a soul patch when it goes all the way down your chin? I don't know. Mm. I'm going to have to look into know. that. I don't, I don't know what that particular configuration of facial hair is called, but uh, but it looks good on Eugene Levy. He's got a good face for it. Right. And, uh, yeah, he's. I mean, he's I mean, he's just he's the maestro. Like, the way he kind of, like you said, like the way he plays his character is really, really pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's just... Like throughout the entire movie, he never seems like he's quite all there, and it, it's he's just really fun to watch. And we see him 
he gets back together with Mickey. Mickey is now married and living in the suburbs. And her husband um, is Leonard Crab, I believe the character's yeah. name was. Right. Yeah. Uh, who's who's this sort of tweedy English guy who's really into model trains. And he, ha- he has a catheter business. And he's very yeah. eager to talk about that over, over meals. Yeah, like when... I mean, when when Mitch asked him, "Oh, what do you do?" He's like, "Oh, well, I'm in the catheter business." He he went into he went so in depth into the whole world of catheters and constipation and people with leakage. Like he and really <laughs> he really yeah. loves talking about yeah. this. And he and his and incontinence and in general. And he's like, "Yeah, so so basically every." 18 seconds, a new <laughs> incontinent person is born, <laughs> and. and uh, Catherine O'Hara, who is, who's also great in this movie, she she has one of my favorite lines in the movie because th- he's doing this over lunch and she just goes, you know what? This might be better dessert talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I mean, this is pretty, it's like a bunch of poop jokes, but I, mm-hmm. I see this as being highbrow poop jokes. Yes, yes. This is the highest of highbrow poop jokes. <laughs> um, we, we find out a little more of Mitch and Mickey's backstory. Mitch... Uh, they met when they were both folkies in like the village, I think, in the early '60s. And Mitch, like, defended Mickey's honor when she was she and her group was being heckled by this uh, drunk guy in a bar. And Mitch got horribly beat up and was put into the hospital. And Mickey came and visited him in there, and and romance blossomed. Yes, and uh, honestly, and they and they played some of their old songs. And I mean, we'll probably talk about this later. But like, mm-hmm. dude, the soundtrack to this album is. Really fantastic! Like, uh, like the songs on this, on this, uh, in this movie and on the soundtrack are like genuinely really good songs. Like, I get like yeah. the Mitch, and, the Mitch and Mickey songs. Like, I don't mind telling you, I, I, I sometimes get like emotional, tear up a little bit at some of those songs. It's like it's it's a great uh, it's a great soundtrack. Yeah, and the highlight I think is that song, the Mitch and Mickey song, "A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow," which that's that song has a really interesting backstory to it. It's uh, something that Michael McKean co-wrote with his wife, Annette O'Toole. Um, they, uh, in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, they, uh, of course, nobody could fly in the country for several days. I forget how long flights were grounded for, but um, Annette O'Toole had to get back. She had to get from L.A. back to Vancouver because she was shooting the show Smallville at the time where she played uh, Martha Kent. And... So since they couldn't fly, they drove from L.A. up to Vancouver, and the two of them wrote uh, this song on the way. And, oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. Isn't isn't that a neat story? Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea. Did Did Michael yeah. McKean write most of the songs for the bands in this? On this, uh, uh, he wrote a lot of them. He let's see. He has. I, I've got the soundtrack listing. Uh, he has credits on, or co-writing credits on Old Joe's Place, Just That Kind of Day, Never Did No Wanderin', Fair Away, The Good Book Song, Never Did No Wanderin'. Uh, there were a couple versions of that on, in the movie. Uh, Blood on the Coal, and Potatoes in the Paddy Wagon, and A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, and, and the title song, A Mighty Wind. So, yeah, Michael McKean is all over this album, folks. Wow. Yeah. Dude, it's like a, a songwriting dynamo. Talented guy. Talented guy. I mean, he's he's an amazing actor. He's a, he's a great singer and a really good songwriter, too. 
He's he's not just Lenny from Laverne and Shirley, people. He is not. He is he is also Mr. Green from Clue. He's also uh, 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 Chuck uh, McGill from Better Call Saul. He's he's David St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap. I mean, Michael McKean. I can't say enough good things about Michael McKean. He is amazing. Shake, rattle, and roll. <laughs> I don't know why that came to me. If you don't love Michael McKean, I think it's safe to say you're just a horrible person. Yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah. That's not, that's not yeah. going overboard. Yeah, no. You know who hates Michael McKean? Assholes. That's who hates Michael McKean. That's right. That's, I, stand, I, I co-sign on that. Yeah, I'm drawing a line in the sand right now. If you, if you dislike Michael McKean, there's something wrong with you. You're just a garbage person. You are. You are. I mean, yeah, you know, Annette O'Toole, she's not going to marry no trash. That's right. So I, I I, would really love to just like someday have dinner with Michael McKean and Annette O'Toole. I bet that would be a really fun evening. They seem oh, like just light. Oh, dude. And then like afterwards, like they just pull out the acoustic guitars. Like, hey, you want to sing uh, some folk songs? And then yeah, you got yeah, like, yourself. Well, they even have to do that. They can just regale me with stories of their of their great acting careers. I mean, I'm sure that would be a fascinating evening. Dude, I'm sure he's got some great Laverne and Shirley stories. Just just sure. one deck. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so what right. else? We oh, I mean, we haven't talked about the the folksmen yet. Like uh, how? Yeah. Okay. Let Let's get into the folksmen. I mean, just visually. <laughs> just, just Harry Shearer with that bald head and that Abraham Lincoln beard. I mean, that's yeah. that, that's he, a choice. He kind of, he's got one of those beards that, yeah, it is like in the Abraham Lincoln style, but it doesn't, it doesn't really cover any of his chin. The whole beard is pretty much under his chin, so it's a very unusual style. But it's probably a not uncommon style of beard among uh, folk <laughs> musicians in the 1960s. It's like a beard bib. Yes, it's a beard bib. Yes, exactly. And and I love Christopher Guest's look in 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 the Folksman too, because he's he's got he's got his hair kind of grown out. He's like kind of bald up top, but it's like growing out on the sides. And then he's got a mustache. And yeah, they, they look like the old folkies hippies that they are. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's something. Else. I mean, only. Uh... Of Michael McKean's character, Jerry, he's the only like kind of normal looking one. The other two guys are just like, yeah. "Wow, you're you're really going for it." Well, Michael Michael McKean's the center, and he allows the other two to get a little more cartoonish and exaggerated. And uh, yeah, kind of, I mean, maybe a little similar to Spinal Tap. And it's the Folksmen actually they predate this movie. They actually debuted the Folksmen on an episode of Saturday Night Live uh, when Michael McKean hosted in November of 1984. And it was the same year that Spinal Tap was out, but they decided not to do a Spinal Tap thing on the show. So they did a folk trio uh, loosely based on the Kingston trio. Oh, wow. I guess it was just an idea that just had a line around that they were just kind of playing around with. Yeah, I think they just decided to do something different and have a little fun. And an interesting thing is they've actually opened, they've been their own opening act for Spinal Tap concerts as the Folksmen. And in some instances, they've gotten booed off the stage as the Folksmen by people who they either didn't get the joke or they were super going along with the joke. I don't know which one it was. So, okay. So they, they were a folk group opening up for like a heavy metal group, 
but they were yeah. both the same group. Yes. That is, yes. I, I commend that. That that is that is a beautiful thing right there. That that's that is, that's a whole nother level of meta right there. That's like mirrors reflecting mirrors reflecting mirrors. That's it's like a whole hull of mirrors, and you're just yeah. That's Inception right there. Like the top is spinning. Exactly, exactly. The city is folding in on itself, and and <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt is running up walls and having a fight in a hallway, and and Ellen Page and is doing something too that I forget. And I'm watching all this just being very confused. Yes. Yes. It's a dream inside of a dream inside of another dream. Yeah. It, I, I like uh, that movie. But like, it, it, another dude. <laughs> You're a dude who don't know what duty is. <laughs> oh, good times. But, um, and according to Wikipedia, the folksman also appeared in Spinal Tap's 1992 TV special, The Return of Spinal Tap. So, oh, far out. Yeah, and apparently, um, the a Mighty Wind grew out of the original concept was them to just do a movie about the Folksman, kind of how this is Spinal Tap is about Spinal Tap, but they decided to expand it along the way and introduce some other folk groups. So, oh, far out. Yeah, not bad. All right, so all right, so now that we know. I think I think we talked about all the groups involved with it. I mean, I've I feel remiss if we didn't talk about the scene with the great Fred Willard as uh, the yep. new Main Street Singers manager. Yeah, yeah, and Mike LaFontaine, I believe his name is. Yeah, like like the first, I think the first sentence out of his mouth is like, "Hey, Mike LaFontaine here," and then he like has like a fart machine in his hand and he presses that. And then yep. he goes, ha, 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 com- comics constant companion. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he's he's a guy who was he was on a TV show that lasted all of one season, and he's like, and I I had a catchphrase, what happened? And he still like breaks that out at every opportunity, even when there's not an opportunity, he breaks it out, and he's yeah. and he had other catchphrases that didn't go as big, like I got a real wet wagon, and <laughs> I don't think so. I'm- I can't do my work. Yeah, and he's and like most of Fred Willard's characters, he's he is just totally ignorant and oblivious of how much of an ass he's being at any given moment. But he, in his own mind, he is hilarious, and he's and that that was the genius of Fred Willard is he he's just so wonderfully unfunny that he becomes funny again. He circles back around to funny. Yeah, I love how uh, Fred Willard's his character, Mike. In this movie, he has like spiky blonde hair, like Guy, like Guy Fieri, and like yes. all, I, I, like that the whole thing, and no, no one mentions it or comments on it. He's just like he just has it, and like part of me thinks, was that Fred's choice, or was that part of the script, or what was that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I think in a movie like this, where where it is, where like they know the story and they know like the history of the groups, but they improvise all the dialogue. I think the actors had a lot of input into their characters, so I I would not be surprised if that hair was Fred Willard's choice. I respect that man more and more every day. Yeah, yeah, he's he was a he was a treasure. He was a gift. Um, yeah. And there, there are some other behind the scenes people we should mention. There are there are two other uh, kids uh, in the Steinblum family. There's Elliot and Naomi Steinblum, uh, played by Don Lake and Deborah Theaker, and. Uh, <laughs> they don't really get into it, but it's obvious that the the, the Steinblum siblings do not have a good relationship with each other. 
and and Don Lake's character of Elliot in particular, he's he is completely indifferent to folk music. He he jokes like, "Oh yeah, I moved to North Dakota to to get as far away from it as possible." And this is skipping ahead a bit, but during the final concert, you see him like literally like flipping through the program. <laughs> Just right. the thing you do when you're utterly bored by a performance. And he's sitting on the front row. And a tribute to his father. Yeah, and meanwhile, his sister Naomi is like having. She seems like like a very emotional person. Like she's just like yeah. kind of breaks down into tears at, at every moment. Just like she's yeah. like crying and just and hysterical at the end of this. Uh, at the end of the at the last concert, and uh, yeah. I think also at one point when they introduce when the, all the Stein Blue kids talk on camera, they say, "Yeah, you know, we don't get together that much. We don't um, we don't meet or talk that much." And I think Naomi is like. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's oh. very it's just a just a whole lot of repression going on in this family. They don't they do not talk things out. They bury those problems deep inside. Um, yeah, at one point Naomi is just like crying during the interview, and the other two kids are just like, just let her get it out. Just don't don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, don't, and don't even comfort her. They don't even put like a hand on the shoulder. Like they're there. Um, it, it, it says a lot. It says a lot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we also have uh, Ed Bagley Jr. popping up as Lars Olfen, who uh, runs a public broadcasting network, uh, PBN. And he is, and this is another weird character quirk that is never explained. He's a Swedish guy who, for some reason, used all sorts of Yiddish and Jewish slang. <laughs> I think, because I thought that was because, maybe because he was talking to, what when, he, when he's talking to, um, Jonathan Steinblum and because uh-huh. you know Steinblum, of course, he's Jewish. So like maybe he just did that. Like oh yeah, I understand what you're going through. You know, the nachas I'm feeling because your father was like mishpocha to me. <laughs> oh, so, so that was a weird bonding thing. I thought it was just something that he did randomly. But maybe yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't know. But either way, that I would say that scene was like the second funniest thing. It was because it was just like. Just a nonstop rolling of like all these Yiddish words, like you know, it's a mitzvah. It's like a, it's a valdachai. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's it's just very funny to see Ed Bakley Jr. speaking Yiddish. Um, that is that is some comic gold right there. I still say I still talk like that sometimes, like like because like I've seen this movie so many times. Like I'll when like when I'm with my friends, be like I'll say something like, "Oh, the nach the nachas I'm feeling right now." <laughs> <laughs> So my friends are like, yeah, my friends are like, what you, what was that? Sure, sure. Um, and let's see, we we also have, um, let's see, uh, another couple members of the Christopher Guest Repertory Company, um, uh, Larry Miller, the late great Larry Miller, and Jennifer Coolidge as Wally Fenton and Amber Cole, and they're they're like backers of of the show, I think. I uh, know they're uh, they work in PR. They uh, that that's right. They're they're they work in PR. And yeah, they're they're like the events people, and uh, yeah, and, and they're not in the movie too much because well, I think they had like some bigger parts in some of the other guest movies. But uh, the the accent that Jennifer Coolidge selected for her character it's it's such an odd yet so wonderfully distinct accent. It's it's really something else. Yeah, it's like um, I want to say it's like Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek, but it's not quite that. It's like a uh, I, I can't describe like it's like a odd accent, but it mm-hmm. it's again it's never commented on. It's just like a character choice by her, but like she just goes with this accent, and at no point I, I, you're thinking why is she 
what is what at where's that from what country yeah. is that from yeah she's obviously like some trophy wife from some some country somewhere but and then and, and so she and she doesn't she doesn't have much of a thought in her head but uh but she tries um uh but but very funny in in their limited amount of screen time um, yeah it's a small thing but it's it's pretty it's pretty hilarious. yeah yeah they, they they make the most of their screen time definitely and we see uh and as the movie goes on, it develops that this is going to be a live televised event. Um, they were originally just planning to record the concert and broadcast it later, but now it's going to be live because that's more excitement, more pressure, and uh, and some of the some of the participating musicians get some stage fright because, like like Mitch and Mickey, they have not performed together or at all in probably decades by this point. So yeah, it's a really nerve wracking thing for them. Yeah, I mean they kind of. I mean, they kind of coached it in thinking that maybe something would happen during their performance because, you know, uh, like you said, like they haven't performed together in years. They haven't talked to each other in years. And they also mm-hmm. sort of talk about how Mitch, you know, he, you know, he's been hospitalized and medicated. And they also allude to he has like a rage problem and like he's like very unpredictable and whatnot. So mm-hmm. like part of me thought that, oh, is, is he going to fly off the handle like, during the performance or before it. And uh, I don't know. The, it, was, it, was, it, was a little, it was very tense, very tense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and we, there's, there's another great scene where the, the new Main Street singers, they're being honored by the deputy mayor uh, of, of New York. And Fred Willard just derails the ceremony in a wonderful way. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a great scene. Yeah. Just telling off-color jokes during the ceremony. He's he he's talks he talks about like he addresses the deputy mayor as as your honor, and then he tells a joke about like being at an orgy, and it's like, hey, have you seen my wife? Well, your honor. <laughs> and, and Fred Willard, he just thinks he's hilarious at any given time. And and there's a, like another scene where he he's makes this asinine suggestion to the new Main Street singers that uh, talking suggesting that they be splashed with water during their performance. And then he like whispers into John Michael Higgins ear. Uh, and you know, he's whispering something perverted about the women getting splashed with water. And yeah, again, <laughs> like, again, it's something like, you know, you never hear what he, he says, but you know, it's pretty gross. Yeah. But the expression on John Michael Higgins's face is enough to tell you like, it's awful. Oh. Man, and they, and they also had this other sort of subplot with the Main Street singers about um, how Terry and Lori are are kind of their religion, their religious uh, practices. They're um, they're in this group called Wink, which is witches in nature's color. Yeah, yeah, they worship color, and uh, yeah, it's sort of this weird. I guess you could call it a cult. I don't know, um, but it's yeah. not a cult. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but they do, it's like, oh, you hear witches, you think, oh, you know, people in pointy hats. Well, I mean, you know, they do wear pointy hats, but... Yes, <laughs> yes. Different. But, yeah, but, yeah, the, the the rest is just a horrible stereotype. Um, <laughs> yeah, they don't have brooms. Right, right. Um, and uh, so so we finally get to the big concert, um, and we we find out... That um, 
that Bob Balaban's character of uh, what was his character's name again? Jonathan right. uh, uh, Steinblum. He is he is just utterly utterly clueless. He does not know how any of the the stage stuff works. He's criticizing like the backdrops on the stage literally an hour before the performance. He's concerned about the apple blossoms possibly poking out somebody's eye if they get too close to them in the lobby. And he's, he is just so out of his element. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, like he's really bothering the, uh, the events coordinator at the, this is being held at town hall, which is a historic Mm -hmm. venue in the city. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he's really like bothering the, uh, the events coordinator. I forget who, the name of the guy who's playing. Uh, it was Mitch Hitchcock, I believe. Yes, that's it. Mitch Hitchcock was also in. Uh, Hitchcock. Excuse me, Michael Hitchcock as Lawrence E. Turpin. Yes, who's the events liaison at Town Hall. Right, that's it. Uh, yeah, he was in. Um, uh, he was in Bridesmaids, which we've talked about, and he was also in uh, Best in Show. And uh, and uh, yeah, so like basically, like it's him kind of like being overly cautious and overly kind of naggy about mm-hmm. everything in the set. Like um, they have like a, like a big stand in or a, a big set design of a banjo and a guitar. And yeah. uh, Bob Balaban's character just keeps calling it furniture. It's like, Oh, does this <laughs> furniture look 3d from yeah. Cause yeah. It's, cause it's flat here. So like, won't it look flat out there? And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's called a set. It's not furniture. It's like, all right. Yeah. So can the, why is the furniture next to, this uh, light post. Is this a real working light post? Can something fake be next to something that's not fake? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a hilarious ball-busting scene. Yeah, yeah. And he, he gets so irritating that Michael Hitchcock finally just, like, uh, beans him on the back of the head. He just slaps <laughs> him on the head to get him to shut up for a moment. Um, and uh, so so when the the concert finally starts, it starts out with the new... Uh, Main Street singers, they come out and they are doing their thing and they sing one of the Folksman's trademark songs, Never Did No Wanderin'. <gasps> um, and and we, we got to the Folksman just down in their dressing room listening to the feed of the show and they're just like, what the hell are they doing? What the hell? And Because that's what they were planning to open their set with and now obviously they can't do that because the other group has just sort of co-opted their song. Yeah, because I mean, as we learn, uh, I mean, before this, there was like a sort of a, a party that had all the um, folk acts and everybody together to celebrate the the show. And but we yeah. learned like uh, uh, Michael McKean's character Jerry, he just sees the new Main Street singers as like a kind of commercialized version of folk. They're not real folk. They're like yeah, mainstream yeah. folk. Yeah, he doesn't have any respect for them. And uh, when when the folksmen are down back in their dressing room and they're just kind of having a powwow to deciding what to do, how they're going to open their set now. Um, uh, Harry Shearer just says like, well, we could, we could just be bold and just do wandering. And, <laughs> and Michael just looks at him like he grew another head. And he's like, have you, have you been gone for the last couple minutes? It's being done. It's being butchered out there on stage right now. And Harry Shearer is like, no, no, we give the audience a choice. Like they can do like their toothpaste commercial and we can do like the real version. <laughs> <laughs> the real raw, rugged folks music. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, but, but it's just very funny. And of course, like the new Main Street singers are just totally oblivious that they've 
done anything that could ever possibly offend. I mean, it obviously never entered their heads that the folksmen might want to do one of their own songs at this big tribute concert. Mm, it's very true. Very true. Uh, and meanwhile, Mitch of Mitch and Mickey, he goes out out of town hall for some air and we see him just sort of wandering New York City. And then he's he's lost for a while. and We don't know what has become of Mitch. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I guess this is what everybody thought might happen, because, you know, throughout the whole uh, movie up to this point, like Mitch was kind of seen as like the, the loose cannon. Like, you don't yeah. know if he's totally stable. You don't like there's a good chance he might do something on the day of the show. And this seems to uh, to be it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's just wandering around. And this happens while the folksmen are on stage. So the folksmen have to fill. They have to extend their set because we obviously can't have Mitch and Mickey go on when one half of the duo was missing. And and so they are just they are just vamping like their lives depend on it. And yeah, and so they do and another I, yeah. couple of numbers more than they expected to. Yeah. Yeah. And at the very end, when they have like you said, when they have to stretch, uh, I think it was um, Christopher Guest character, Alan, who says, you know, we'd like to play another song for you called The Skeletons of Quinto. And you can just see the look on um, on Jerry's face, Michael McKean's character. Like, he's like very like, oh, this song, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't yeah. want to do it because it's like a song about the um, the Civil War, like the Spanish Civil War. And it's like a very down, down song. And right. like, and you can see like, like the other two guys are into it, but he doesn't want to do it, and just that's just pretty hilarious. And like the at the um, as they're about to do it, like Harry Shearer gives us like very somber speech about the um, about the war, and, mm-hmm. and, and like how yes, you know, many Spaniards lost their lives during this time. And then um, once they find Mitch, one of the stage hands come out on stage and whispers in his ear, and then like mid sentence as he's talking, he just says. Good night, everybody. And then they did. <laughs> so we get the long, drawn-out intro to this song, and then it's just he's signaled by the stage hand, and then it's like, all right, that's it for us. Good night. <laughs> and, I mean, I, as people who've like performed on stage, I, I, I think we can certainly both relate to that. Is like you've had times where you've had to vamp on stage. Yeah, but once if you can get off, once you can get off stage, you get off stage. Yeah, yeah, and it's. It is oh god! It is just a slow death when you, you, you are literally out of material and you still have to just vamp. I did that. I had to do that like a few months ago when uh, at at some place where we both performed, where we were uh, both at, at characters, and I was uh, I was performing during a comedy contest, and I was performing while the judges were like tabulating the results, and I had to go on about I think about ten minutes longer than I expected to. So you know, you just. I was I like burned through my set and then I was like okay I guess I'm they're not ready yet I guess I'm just doing crowd work for the next ten minutes. Where, where are you from? What do you do? Where are you from? What do you do? Where are you from? What do you do? Ask each individual audience member and yeah. Where are you from? What do you do? Yeah yeah yeah. Uh, so you know you you go through the audience you find out who you can play with and you you do what you can out of it. Yeah, you do what you can. Uh, yeah. So then once Mitch is found, uh, he was wandering the streets looking for a rose because, uh, I mean, they, they talked about it earlier, but when Mitch got beaten up, you know, all those years ago, uh, he was given a rose while he was in a hospital bed by Mickey. And so the rose is like very symbolic throughout their uh, relationship. Yes. 
Yes. And uh, so he comes back with a rose for Mickey and then, and then he's like, Oh, are we on? And yeah, you know, again, he's Mitch is not quite all there, but he's, he is, he is game branched as they say. Um, oh, I like that. But, but they go on, they go on stage and they, they sing their trademark song, uh, uh, kiss at the end of the rainbow. And, and it, there's a neat thing where it cuts back down to the folksmen in their dressing room. And, Michael McKean just goes, oh, this is that really pretty song, the one with the kiss in it. And he's like, oh, can you turn that up? And it's just, it's kind of funny if you know that Michael McKean co-wrote this song because he's, <laughs> they cut to his character going, oh, this is that really pretty song. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, like, wow, wow this, song's, this song's great. Wow. Yeah, this is great. You should you should all buy this single and uh, give, give the songwriter some royalties, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You should go buy some of your local Tower Records, where there's a they're half it's half off. Yes, yes, you know because that Laverne and Shirley, uh, those Laverne and Shirley residuals don't last forever, folks. They do not. <laughs> Michael McKean needs some cheddar. Mm-hmm. Um, make it, making his dreams come true for me and you. Right. And uh, and then we reach the big climax of a kiss at the end of the rainbow, the part where Mitch and Mickey always. Uh, had a kiss at the end that the audience always responded to. And nobody knows if they're going to do it because they, of course, are not a couple anymore. Mickey's married to someone else. And and just on impulse, Mitch kisses Mickey. And it's, of course, a big, big moment mm. that, that people respond to. And then, and then we have the big group finish on the title song, A Mighty Wind. Um, and which which is another really catchy, cool folk song. Yeah, it's a very rousing kind of. It's a very very rousing, you know, Americana type of folk song. Mm-hmm. I really like. I, I genuinely get moved by it. And then, but yeah. I saw like somebody made on uh, on my Facebook page. Somebody says like, "Is this like a is this song like a, a blowjob joke?" Because like you know, it's blowing you and me. Is that? Uh... Yeah, yeah. You know what that lyric it's towards the end they're like you know oh it's it's blowing the wind of freedom it's blowing you and me it's like how did i never how did that lyric never jump out to me before i mean i never got the double entendre in that song before but uh, yeah but i mean it's a genuinely beautiful song yeah yeah it is a very pretty song but uh it's uh oh and you know we should give a special shout out to somebody we haven't mentioned yet is uh a parker posey who's playing one of the new Main Street Singers. She's one of the like the next generation uh, group, and uh, she, her character is named uh, Sissy uh, Sissy Knox. Yeah, and her performance is really great. She she does that thing where she's just sort of exaggeratedly singing everything, and she's just right, like right. out all the lyrics, and she's real smiley and bubbly and perky, and it's just on the side of annoying because <laughs> she's yeah, just like- really too much yeah i mean there's that one there's that one scene where uh she's in orlando and she's like performing in front of like a a room full of school kids like you know yeah you know, grade school kids and she's like yeah and she's like kind of rocking out in this like not a ukulele but like the smallest guitar and like the yeah. kids look like so uninterested but she's yeah. like yeah. she has like a big smile on her face like yeah woo, this rocks and the kids yeah. are like I, sure <laughs> And I actually learned on the IMDb trivia page, she actually learned how to play the mandolin for for this role. So that's that's uh. pretty cool. Like all, all the uh, 
all the songs were written by Eugene Levy, Christopher Guest, and the other actors in the cast, who, and everyone played the, all their own instruments. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and they, they all did their own singing? Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Michael John Michael Higgins actually did wrote all the vocal arrangements for the new Main Street Singers. Uh, it says here on IMDb, originally the group was going to be a nine-piece ensemble that sang in unison with everyone singing the same part, but it was decided to give Higgins free reign with it. So he did some really nice arrangements. Man, dude, Christopher, yeah. Re- Christopher Guest really lets his, you know, his actors just do like free range to, to do what they do, what they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he gathers some talented people together. I mean, he really, he really knows what he's doing, man. Absolutely. Wow. All right. And uh, yeah, so then that, it, the concert ends with this big rousing song, a mighty wind, which is a fantastic song. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the show is a hit. It goes off, it goes off pretty seamlessly. And uh, mm-hmm. then they, then they cut to six months later to show what all the groups are uh, doing since then. Yeah. We have a little epilogue, and um, we have Fred Willard, who's who's talking about all the great, what a hit the concert was, and all the great new opportunities he's getting for the new Main Street singers um, that he's pitching, and he's and he he's pitched this idea of the new Main Street singers as Supreme Court justices. Um, so yeah. during the day, they judge court they judge cases in the supreme court and then by night they all go home to this home that they all share together and they sing folk songs together right uh yeah he pitched the idea because he thought that there were only, that there were like 12 supreme court judges but it turned out there's only nine he, he doesn't yeah. know if it's a, a budget thing or what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it just i mean that's how wonderfully ignorant uh fred willard's character is yeah um and yeah it's it's just great. And honestly, if the new Main Street singers were our Supreme Court justices, would we be any worse off than we are today? Probably not. Yeah. I'd, we'd, not. we'd be better off musically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we find, and then we have, we pick up with Mickey at a trade show, a medical trade show for SureFlow, which is her husband's uh, catheter product. Um, and she's she's resumed her music career. She's like playing a song about a jingle for sure flow with on her dulcimer, and and uh, yeah, she's making a song about like penis clamps and whatnot. Yeah, she, but she's rediscovered her muse and she's fulfilled as a musician once again. And but she's um, she she's uh, still a bit distressed about Mitch because Mitch took the kiss the wrong way, and. Uh, she she feels bad by it, but she doesn't feel like she led him on. And and we discover that Mitch he is back in the psychiatric hospital. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but but he's talking about what a creatively fertile period it is for him. He has he having ideas faster than he can write them down. Yeah, and then he also feels bad, like he thought he might have led uh, Mickey on, but like he doesn't. Yeah. You know, so like they both feel like they led each other on and. But they both seem to be happy. Yeah, I mean, as as happy as you can be in a psychiatric hospital, I would say Mitch yeah. is happy. <laughs> psychiatric happy. And uh, and then we pick up on the Folksmen, uh, and they're playing at a casino. And uh, the big joke there is that <clears throat> Harry Shearer, who was who is the deepest voice in the trio, he was the bass. Uh, in the performance, he, he plays the upright bass and he's the bass voice. 
Uh, the joke there is that out of nowhere, he has transitioned and he has now become a woman. And he's like, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life as a bold folk singer. I wanted to spend the rest of my life playing with these two, but do it as a woman. So he's he's in a blonde wig and a, and a, and a floral print dress now. Yeah, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> really came out of nowhere. There is no foreshadowing for this at all. Like the closest thing we had to foreshadowing is is we find out that he uses like cream on his face and he likes to take care of himself that way. Uh, but they just do it for the the gag at the end of, of Harry Shearer being in drag and in a dress. Um, yeah, that was... <laughs> wow. This joke probably hasn't aged the best out of in the 17 years since this movie came out, you know? Yeah, the, this movie was almost cancel-proof until the very yeah. end. Yeah, because, I mean, like, up until now, the joke is all just about people's behavior, really. And, and here, the joke at the very end is just like, hey, he became a woman. Ha-ha, <laughs> isn't that funny? Anyway, you know? good night, everybody. <laughs> and and the, the joke is, like, he's still singing all the same deep parts, but he's now doing it as a woman. And, uh, and the weird thing is that they actually continued this gag uh past the movie they the the harry shearer uh michael mckean and christopher guest appeared as the folksman on an episode of late night with conan o'brien and they sang a cover of the rolling stones start me up and harry shearer still in drag still in the blonde wig still in a dress um so they continued that gag past the movie which was that was something else commit to the bit yeah, they committed to the bit. Um, so, uh, but uh, I, I do have to say, beyond the the joke of of Harry Shearer's character transitioning, not aging especially well, it's a very funny appearance on Conan. Um, just you have to hear the arrangement they put on the Rolling Stones. Start me up, yeah. Uh, especially at the end when they're they're getting to the lyric, "You make a dead man come." <laughs> Dude, I never realized that was the lyric in that song until I heard it. I heard them sing it. Then I was like, wait, yep. what? Yep. 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 <laughs> How come no one said anything about like, what the hell? That's, that's, that's I, did inappropriate. Once, I did once when I heard that song on the radio and as the, the start me up was, was fading out at the end. Um, <laughs> the, the DJ had a little fun with it where Mick Jagger saying, uh, you, you make a grown man cry. The DJ just said really quickly, Oh, uh, that's pretty easy to do. And then Mick Jagger says, "Sings, uh, you make a grown, you, you you make a dead man come." And then the DJ goes, "That's somewhat harder to do." Um, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a little trickier. Yep, yep. Having a little fun with that. So, uh, oh, so <laughs> that, that's a mighty wind. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, one of Fred Willard's. One of my favorite. Uh, Fred Willard movie that I think I'd say, yeah. and uh, yeah, guys, check it out. If it's like, I mean, it's it's uh, predominantly an improv movie, mostly improvised, mm -hmm. and but it's, it's done by some of the best improvers like you'll ever see. And like, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. It's like a solid movie, a solid soundtrack. Like the soundtrack, like it, it kicks ass. I'll just say that. Yep, yep, yep. It slaps, as the kids say. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bop, as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. I think we use that right. I don't know. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's a mighty win. That is that is a mighty win. Let me see if there's is there is there any other cool trivia that we didn't note about it. I think I think we we covered most everything. 
Oh, yeah. wait, uh, here's one thing. Uh, Mickey's new husband is a model train enthusiast with only one train. This is because when the filmmakers went to the home, which supposedly contained an, an impressive train setup, all the trains themselves were broken or otherwise unusable. The engine scene moving in the movie is being pulled by dental floss through Crabtown. So, ah. So keep an eye out for that. Um, okay. And, uh, <laughs> and on the DVD, uh, they have all sorts of special uh, features with uh, the full-length musical performances, including the full reunion concert, and you can watch it as it would have appeared on TV in the world of the movie. So. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, far out. Guys, check it out. So that's neat. So, yeah, but so worth worth seeing. It's always fun when uh, Christopher Guest gets the gang together and puts on a show. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Here, here. Yep, fun movie to revisit. Absolutely. It was definitely, uh, definitely put a smile on my face in these uncertain times. Yes, yes. So, uh, so thumbs up from Darren and John for A Mighty yeah. Wind. Absolutely. Uh, we don't have much in the way of Twitter news, so, I mean, like, basically we just... Talked. We just got some tweets about the uh, Conan performance, which we talked about, and uh -huh. um, the original and performance. The performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I think it's I think it's funny that I mean the the folksmen had gone back almost twenty years by the time they did this movie, which is that's something else. That's that's commitment to the bit. Yeah, like I didn't even know about that the original uh, appearance in '84 until this movie came out. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't watching uh, SNL as much in, in November of 84. So that was like probably just around the time I first saw the show. It was somewhere in that season. So, yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's our review, guys. Um, so, that, uh, we don't have any new uh, reviews on the podcast to read out. So if you want to review the podcast, please bring them at us. You know, good or bad. We prefer good. We prefer a five-star review. That always helps out the podcast. But but uh, we like to hear your feedback. Um, so please do that. And if you want to follow the show, you can follow us at SNL, SNL Nerds Show on Twitter. And you can follow our, uh, our, our personal pages. Uh, I'm at Trumbull Comic, T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L, -L, and the word comic. Uh, I'm at Darren Credible, D-A-R-I-N Credible, on Twitter and Instagram. Yes. And... Uh, so next week, uh, I think we're going to continue in our fun, silly escapism vein, and we're going to continue a movie. We watched the first one a, a few months back, uh, but we're going to go back and watch the second one now. And we're we're going to do, um, would you say it's a classic? Uh, depends on who you ask, I'll say. Okay. Okay. We're we're on the fence about whether this is a classic or not, but it, but it is a well-known comedy movie starring another SNL veteran, SNL great, uh, Mr. Michael Myers in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, baby, yeah. Ah, yeah, so we're going to go back to the swinging 60s and the nutty 90s and uh, have fun with that. And that'll be fun. It's uh, Mike Myers, Heather Graham, Mike Myers, and Mike Myers, and uh, uh, <laughs> Vern Troyer, and uh, Michael York, and, and Rob Lowe, and... All sorts of fun Seth, stuff. In Seth Green's in there somewhere. Seth Green, yes, yes. So that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. It'll be it'll be a hoot and a half. Yeah, hoot and a half. Yes, that's what we're gonna do, and that that is still streaming on Netflix. So please join us in a rewatch of Austin Powers: The Spy Who Shagged Me. Mm -hmm. 
Sexy. No. Sexy. Sexy. <laughs> Get our mojos working again. Indeed. Oh, God. So, uh, guys, until then, stay safe. Uh, you know, just be, be careful of all the madness out there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll join us again for a little silliness in this in these crazy times. Yes. And so, yeah, take care of yourselves. And until then, nerds, nerds out. out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.